0: mick sullivan of the past and the curious has a new book available that's me i see lincoln's underpants is a book about famous people and their underwear 16 chapters on 16 people and their undies and lots of other stuff too like the underwear hall of fame lots of laughing lots of learning it's available wherever you get your books and if you wind up with a copy please leave a review be sure to request it at your local library too that will help this is an indie effort i am an indie operation thank you hey everybody it's mick from the past and the curious happy end of february beginning of march whenever you're listening to this which brings me to some points of news march 3rd is the meat shower day it's the anniversary i think it's the 147th anniversary of the kentucky meat shower i will be doing a reading on youtube live on our youtube channel at 7 p.m on march 3rd that's friday eastern standard time and then i'll do another one since friday night who knows what's going on on saturday march 4th at 11 a.m eastern standard time hope you will join another thing that is awesome is that i will be at the wbur in boston uh the kids podcast festival which is april 14th and 15th i think i'm going to be on on sunday april 15th so if you are anywhere in that area come please. I would love to see you. Uh, I'm really excited and really thrilled to be invited to such an awesome event. There's a lot of other great podcasters. So uh, keep that in mind. Speaking of other great podcasters, I have a special guest this month. It's Ryan Willard from The 10 News, which is a great show. I've been talking with them a lot. I'm going to be on the show later, um, but it's been great to work with them and and get to know them. Uh, And so Ryan is part of that team and He came in and did the voice of Samuel Langley, who you'll meet because we're going to tell the story of the Wrights, the Wright brothers, the Wright sister, and also this whole weird thing with them in the Smithsonian. I don't know if you knew this, but the airplane wasn't in the Smithsonian for decades because there was controversy. On October 7th, 1903, A crowd of citizens, politicians, public figures, and scientists lined the banks of the Potomac River near Widewater, Virginia. Many had eagerly traveled from nearby Washington, D.C. to witness what they hoped would be a momentous new milestone for humankind. For centuries, people had dreamt of powered, controlled flight. Even in the 1500s, Leonardo da Vinci designed machines to fly people but they never resulted in anything more than sketches and his notebooks. But now, in 1903, Samuel Langley seemed to be standing on the edge of something great. Hello! Uh, hi. Mr. Langley was a physicist, an astronomer, a scientist, and now secretary, the leader of the Smithsonian Institution. This made him one of the most powerful and well-connected scientists in the world, and he had spent the last decade focused on creating a powered flying vehicle that would be operated by a person on board. Equipped with every resource he could possibly need, including time, materials, and space to work, not to mention the equivalent of $2 million from the Department of Defense, the Smithsonian's head honcho also had the luxury of access to nearly every morsel of research anyone else had ever done in the hopes of flying. If anyone could make it happen, it was Langley. And Charles Manley, the man that he actually hired to fly the wondrous new creation. The result of Langley's years of work was resting on a catapult on top of a houseboat anchored in the middle of the river. It was called the Aerodrome, and it had four gigantic wings, two in the front, two in the back, along with a powerful 53-horsepower engine. For years, he had been experimenting on unmanned prototypes, and his demonstrations had thrilled the likes of Alexander Graham Bell and Teddy Roosevelt. (coughs) Theodore! Likewise, the newspapers ran stories on his work for nearly seven years ahead of this big event, so people everywhere were eager to follow along with the man they believed would surely, certainly, finally create the machine that would allow people to fly with power and control. Were they right? They were worse than right. They were wrong. When the catapult was sprung, the aerodrome was flung high into the air, Breaths were held and eyes were squinted in nervous excitement. But those eyes watched in confusion as the contraption quickly and gracelessly came tumbling straight back down into the chilly waters of the Potomac.
1: What an embarrassment. All that money, all that time, all that hype. And all I to show for it is my poor broken aerodrome. Look, it's like a giant squished dragonfly just floating along in the river. A dragonfly! A really expensive, squished up dragonfly.
0: Perhaps there were just minor problems to work out. So Langley got himself together, patched up the vehicle and made a second attempt just two months later on December 8th. Once again, the catapult sprung the aerodrome high into the sky, where it should have been airborne enough for the engines to engage and propel the plane with control. That was the plan anyway. The reality was yet another crash and splash. Everyone believed it to be a failure of enormous proportions. And in many ways, they were correct.
1: Oh, how many resources have I wasted? I shudder to think. And I wonder, how many lives do dragonflies have?
0: Just nine days after the second squished dragonfly failure, two brothers with no formal training no college education, and no access to endless sums of money, stood on the beach of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina with a plane of their own. They believed that they would be the first to succeed at which Langley had failed. Were they right? Well, yeah, they were doubly right. They were the right brothers. Growing up in Ohio, Orville and Wilbur were constantly tinkering with machines. No doubt, thanks to their mechanically-minded mother. Neither went to college, but instead opened a business of their own together. As young men, they bought hard into the craze sweeping America in the 1800s. Bicycles. They opened up their own bike shop, repaired, built, sold bikes, all while dreaming of soaring like birds. Using their skills and basic mechanical knowledge, they spent hours tinkering and talking and arguing. Apparently, the two loved to argue so much, and they were both so very good at it, that once they argued two different perspectives on a question, and when the evening was over, they had both convinced each other. This meant they still disagreed. They just both convinced each other to flip positions and believe the exact opposite of what they believed before the argument began. Cool. On paper, no one would have nor could have suspected that these two untrained and unconnected bike bros would unlock the secrets of flight. But they were diligent and resourceful, and they investigated every idea they had. They looked to the natural world for inspiration, and they were always challenging each other. Their profits from the bike shop helped pay for their materials and the time that they would focus on flight. They made models and air tunnels and prototypes. They watched birds and experimented with kites they also asked experts. Wilbur wrote to none other than Samuel Langley for help. They knew that he had information that they did not, and, as the head of the Smithsonian, they figured he should probably share that info. Wilbur asked for copies of anything about flight that Langley had, and then added, for clarification, I am an enthusiast, but not a crank, in the sense that I have some pet theories as to the proper construction of a flying machine.
1: Samuel obliged and offered what he could. Oh, hey, you yeah. Yes, sure. Happy to help an enthusiast slash not crank. But I suppose I'd still have to help you even if you were a crank, right? Speaking of cranks, engines sure are heavy, aren't they? I've been having the darndest time making one light enough with any power. Anyway, have fun reading. Good luck flying. Maybe I'll see you in the skies.
0: Orv and Will made an aluminum engine, and this solved the weight problem but they also realized that there were several points of control a pilot would need to master while flying through the air, something that came naturally to the birds that they watched. First, there's something called pitch. No, not not that kind of pitch. This kind of pitch was a no-brainer when it comes to flying. A pilot has to control whether the nose points up or down. That's pitch. Yeah, okay, that's good to know. In order to avoid a splash and crash, one also needs to control a plane's roll, which is the tilt of the wings. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And there's one more access to control, one that no one had ever succeeded in controlling on a flying device before. yaw. Oh yeah,
1: like that song. Hey, y'all. I love that song. No. What's up, y'all?
0: No, no. Secretary Langley. Perhaps you should just listen for a minute. You might need to hear this. Yaw is the name for side-to-side rotation, or the direction of the nose from left to right. With rudders, the Wrights were able to control this motion on their plane. This was pivotal. Okay, well good luck, y'all. The Wright brothers did not need luck. They had done the work, figured out how to build it, and rigorously tested their ideas. So. On December 17th, they made history by flying a powered, piloted, controlled aircraft known as the Wright Flyer. Thanks to a coin flip, Orville was in the pilot seat for the first successful attempt. It was 12 seconds long. Later that morning, Wilbur got a chance, and he stayed in the air for 59 seconds. But there was much disagreement about firsts and achievements and stuff like that, and the Wrights had to fight for their place in history. Most of their troubles began three years later when Langley died. Wait, what? Oh, yeah, sorry. The guy who took his place at the Smithsonian wanted to honor him and prop up his unsuccessful aerodrome as the revolutionary pioneer of flight. So when a competitor of the Wright brothers named Glenn Curtis came asking for the broken bits of Langley's aerodrome, the new director of the Smithsonian said yes. The museum artifact was turned over to someone who was going to fix it and make it fly they both had their reasons curtis had been in court against the wright brothers for copyright infringement on airplanes of his own basically the brothers were saying he copied off of them in his plane design he thought if he could prove that this old plane of langley's which was created before their plane could actually fly they wouldn't be able to call themselves the first successful inventors and that he could make his planes however he wanted The man at the Smithsonian wanted the aerodrome to fly because then he could say his friend Langley's expensive blunder wasn't a blunder at all, but rather the first plane capable of flight. Yeah, it might not have flown before the Wrights in 1903, but if Curtis could prove that it could have, that was good enough for him. Did Curtis succeed? Yes. Yes, he did. It was 11 years after the Wright Flyer, in 1914. When the rebuilt squished up dragonfly did what samuel langley could never make it do it flew
1: i'm so proud i just want to thank all the people i've okay no
0: stop here's the thing after this little stunt the smithsonian institution america's national museum and research facility honored langley and his aerodrome as the first vehicle capable of powered controlled flight capable is the key word there as for the rights they were left out in the cold. Knowing the Wright Flyer was one of the most important developments in history, a turning point in technology, and an incredible artifact, the Wright family wanted to make sure it was preserved and safe forever. But they sure weren't gonna give it to the Smithsonian after this nonsense. So that is how the Wright Flyer, the first airplane in history, wound up in the London Science Museum. Did it stay there forever? Well, stay tuned, and after quiz time, we'll find out.
1: But I need to know now!
0: Mr. Langley, please.
2: Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today.
0: This month's You Have 30 Seconds comes from England, and it is a fascinating and important person from history. Take it away, Esther. Hi, my name is Esther, and I live in Bristol in England. I'm going to tell you about Nelson Mandela since I share my birthday with him. Nelson Mandela was a South African activist. He helped black people gained many important rights. He was arrested multiple times before being sentenced to life in prison. He was in prison for 27 years until he was released by one president. He later became president and served from 1994 to 1999. He was South Africa's first black head of
1: state. He wrote a book called A Long Walk to Freedom.
0: Esther, that was so much great information in 30 seconds. I gotta hand it to you. Great job. Thank you so much for sending that. If you or anyone else out there has a You Have 30 Seconds, you can just record it with your phone and send it to us at hello at thepastandthecurious.com. Esther, great work. Thank you so much. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Oh, here we go. It's quiz time once again. On April 16th, 1912, Harriet Quimby became the first woman to pilot an aircraft over a very particular body of water. It was the same body of water two underwear-clad balloonists flew over more than a century before. So what body of water was it? It was the English Channel, separating England and France. And Harriet Quimby, the first woman to earn a pilot's license in America, made history when she crossed it. Unfortunately, the day before her crossing, another historic event, stole everyone's attention. The Titanic sank the day before, and as a result, her accomplishment did not get much attention in the press. Question number two. In 1929, an organization was founded to promote, educate, and inspire women in aviation. They named themselves in honor of the total number of charter or founding members. Any idea what they are called? They are called the 99s, and it is still an active and important group in the field of aviation today. And their first president was none other than Amelia Earhart. Okay, question number three, your third and final question. In 1784, Elizabeth Thibble became the first woman to fly when she took to the skies in a balloon. While she was airborne, she gave a performance for those on the ground. What do you think she did? Dressed as a Roman goddess, the goddess Minerva actually, she and her co-pilot sang duets from one of the most popular operas of the time. Watching the performance from Earth was an audience including the King of Sweden. Unfortunately, not much else is known about Elizabeth. Most of the rest of her life is a mystery. Family was very important to the Wrights there were five Wright children who lived past infancy. Two older brothers, Lauren and Ruslan, then came Wilbur. Four years later, Orville was born. And finally, on Orville's third birthday, their baby sister, Catherine, was born. None of the kids were given middle names because their parents believed that their first names were plenty unique on their own. Catherine would probably beg to differ. A lack of middle names wasn't the only thing unusual about the Wrights. Life in general was unusual for them, and their childhood was probably not one you would expect from a Midwest family of the 1800s. Their mother, Susan, had grown up with an industrious father with a knack for mechanisms, tools, and building. She learned a lot watching and helping him with woodworking and metalworking jobs. As an adult, she was often described as mechanically-minded by her family. The mother of the Wright siblings repaired whatever needed fixing. She made her own appliances and tools to solve problems, and much to the delight of the kids, she even built many of their toys. She had also gone to college. As a young woman in the 1800s in America, this was very unusual. But in 1852, she attended Hartville College in Indiana, where she excelled in literature and mathematics. She also met her husband, and the eventual father of Flyers, Milton. Milton Wright was a minister, and an important one at that. Once the family was established, he would have to travel often, leaving Susan to manage the house and family. Despite a serious disposition, he would occasionally allow the kids to stay home from school, if they were deeply curious about something and he knew that they'd spend the entire day working out their own discoveries. The three youngest Wrights, Orville, Wilbur, and Catherine, grew very close to one another. Some historians believe that at some point, the three agreed that neither of them would marry, so they could always remain close and dedicated to each other. Whatever the case, the Wrights were clear to assert that while their middle-class upbringing didn't offer them many financial advantages, the attitudes of their parents did. Curiosity, creativity, and learning were wildly important in the Wright house. But when it came time for college, Wilbur did not go. His mother fell ill, and he felt the only thing to do for his family was to stay home and help care for her, which he did dutifully for years. When she died in 1889, the family was crushed, and new responsibilities rested on the only daughter's shoulders. 15-year-old Catherine became the lady of the house. Of course, she still had to deal with the grief of losing her dear mother. In a kind effort to help her cope, Her father suggested that Catherine create her own personal memorial to her mother. So she started collecting as many different types of flower blooms as she could, which were dried and pressed into a book, and she kept this book with her all her life. Filling her mother's shoes and managing the household was a big responsibility, and she handled it for years. Knowing Catherine deserved a career of her own, however, her father eventually suggested that she follow in her mother's footsteps and attend college she would be the only Wright child who did so. While Wilbur and Orville opened a print shop, and later a bicycle shop, she studied at Oberlin College, one of America's first schools open to both African Americans and women. She found she liked life at college. She was smart, friendly, easy to talk to, excited about ideas, and fond to be around. All of those traits, and her big Wright family brain, served her well in her career as a teacher. After graduation, she primarily taught Latin and history, which we can all agree is very cool. Like, probably the coolest subject, right? Those personality traits were also a stark contrast to her brothers. Orv and Will were often quiet and introspective, and only trusting a family. As you know, they spent years developing ideas on how to achieve flight, and when they packed it all in and headed to Kitty Hawk for the flight tests, Catherine took over the day-to-day operations of the bicycle shop. The success the brothers found on the sandy beaches of North Carolina's Kitty Hawk laid the groundwork for their fame. But to turn one big achievement into a career takes not just smart business sense, but also a lot of marketable personality. The former bike bros turned fraternal flyers knew how to make and fly a plane, which no one else could quite figure out. But they were not at their best when it came to business and marketing. Luckily, this came naturally to Catherine. A few years after the first flight, the Wrights were working on a contract with the U.S. military, which was dependent on a flight demonstration in which Orville would carry a passenger. The flight in Virginia ended in a terrible crash due to a fractured propeller. The passenger, a lieutenant in the United States Army, did not survive. Orville did, though he was greatly wounded and upon hearing the news, Catherine left her teaching job in Ohio and rushed to his hospital bed in Washington, D.C. to care for him. It wasn't the first time. She had once missed an entire semester of college because she returned home to care for Orville when he was stricken with typhoid fever. This is what family meant to the Wrights. After weeks of recuperation, Catherine and Orville returned to Ohio, but she would never return to teaching, On his own, their brother Wilbur had traveled to Europe to show their incredible new plane to the crowned heads and military leaders of several nations over the Atlantic Ocean. This new technology could mean a lot of things for the world, not just America. So the Wrights really needed to strut their stuff. The goal was to sell the legal rights that would allow the countries to build these planes. But things weren't going so well, and he needed some help. Not just Orville's, also Catherine's. And not long after arriving, Catherine became a celebrity. She charmed royalty and handled the press and offered clear explanations of the work that her brothers had done. Everyone wanted to talk to her, to photograph her, and to hear her speak. She also helped negotiate the agreements between the Wright Company and the would-be airplane builders. On top of all of that, she also became just the third woman to fly in an airplane when she joined her brother as a passenger including one flight in front of King Edward the 7th. W- what are you doing? Well, the the king's here and your skirt is large. It might catch wind and blow up, so I'm going to secure it with this rope. Tighten it around your legs. Because the king can't see my legs? I don't I don't know. Maybe royalty's weird like that. I'm more concerned with it blowing up in our faces and that it would make me crash the plane. It might be embarrassing if the king saw your legs, but I think it would be way more embarrassing if we crashed. Not sure I would call that embarrassing. Crash sounds more tragic, really. Well, either way, flying good, crashing bad. Hope I didn't tie it too tight. No, that's fine. Don't crash, brother. By the time the Wrights left Europe, they had new business deals, were celebrities, and all three of them were given France's coveted Legion of Honor Award. Catherine being one of the few American women to bear the title. Back in America, they were also finding more business success, but they were also dealing with patent disputes, infringements and copies on their design, and even that pesky Smithsonian problem from the first half of this episode. Many of those problems required lawyers and courthouses, all of which got expensive and exhausting. Catherine was as tireless as the brothers in defending their original design and protecting the family's rights, Unfortunately, in 1912, older brother Wilbur died of typhoid fever. Catherine believed the illness was made worse by the stress of the airplane's never-ending legal matters. Both Orville and Catherine were thrown again into grief at the loss of their dear brother. Catherine had become a force in Ohio's suffrage movement, organizing and working to give women the right to vote, and she soon added officer in the Wright Company to her resume after her brother's death Orville and Catherine together handled the management of the airplane company. But to add insult to injury, this is also when Glenn Curtis redesigned the Langley Aerodrome and flew it in an underhanded attempt to steal the Wright's claim as the first in flight, which would also help weaken their design claims. Orville was so furious that he sent the 1903 history-making airplane known as the Wright Flyer all the way to England to be displayed in the museum there. And he made sure that American citizens knew about the acts of Curtis and the Smithsonian. If America wanted it so badly, they could do the right thing and get it back. For her part, Catherine was equally upset. In fact, she threatened to write a book exposing everything and proving, once and for all, that the rights had changed the world of flight, not anyone else. But she knew that if such a book were to succeed, it would need to come from Orville himself. So she tried for years to get him to do it, but he resisted. Instead, for decades, he carried the anger around and demanded that the Smithsonian apologize and come clean about the trickery. When Catherine was in her 50s, she reconnected with an old friend from college who had recently been widowed. Having been so involved in the lives of family for so long, she saw this relationship as an opportunity to put herself first, and she and the man got married but Orville felt betrayed and was so angry about it that he refused to speak to her for years. In his mind, he lost his sister, which is a very selfish way to think of it. In fact, her husband was a journalist who was a staunch defender of the rights during all of the controversies. Not that that really mattered. Catherine's feelings were what mattered. But unfortunately, she did not enjoy a long marriage. She fell ill just three years later with a terrible case of pneumonia. Knowing things had gotten bad, their older brother Lauren pleaded with Orville to come make amends, and he was at her side when she died in 1929. For years after, Orville kept up his struggle to cement the right family in history. And finally, in 1943, he was in the audience at a fancy Washington D.C. dinner when a proclamation from President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was read, saying the Smithsonian acknowledged its error and would be welcoming the Wright Flyer back to America. The Wright family sold the one-of-a-kind, monumentally historic airplane to the museum for one dollar. Thank you for listening, everybody. This was episode 76 of The Past and the Curious, and my name is Mick Sullivan. Uh, I've got a bunch of people to thank, and I have a Patreon song at the end, which was really fun, so you might want to stick around for that, especially if it's you. Uh, But before I do that, I want to remind you, again, March 3rd and March 4th, we're doing the live reading of The Meat Shower on our YouTube Live channel, our YouTube channel. Um, And then uh, Boston, WBUR kids podcast festival i'm going to be performing presenting uh on sunday the 15th it looks like um uh, but you know check schedule as we get a little closer um this is all 2023 by the way depending on when you're listening to this yeah i'm really really excited and i hope to see anyone in the area uh it'd be great to meet you and i'll have all sorts of stuff if you've purchased a copy of I see Lincoln's underpants. First of all, thank you very much. Um, But if you can leave a review at the platform where you bought it, if that's Amazon or Barnes and Noble or uh, Indiegogo or anything like that, um, please, or Indie Bookshop, um, please, please, please do that. That really, really helps us. And I know a bunch of people have made requests at their local libraries, and that is extremely helpful too. So uh, please, please, please. And just tell anybody if you enjoy the book. Um, It's very much uh, me and the one person publishing team (laughs) that's putting this out. Uh, So um, it's going really well and I I wanna just keep that momentum up. So if there's anything that you you can do to to spread the word, I would be eternally grateful. Um, And speaking of people that I am grateful to, uh, here's some Patreon people. Um, I need to thank Helen in Birmingham, Alabama, and also wish her a happy birthday because her birthday is March 2nd. So Helen, happy birthday to you. There's a lot of birthdays this month. You're not the only one, Helen. Uh, let's see. Wyatt Wolf, happy eighth birthday to you, uh, on March 3rd. You're going to be eight on meat shower day. (laughs) Ha ha! Happy meat shower birthday, Wyatt Wolf. I love it. Um, let's see. Anna and Mackie, uh, I... I hear that you two sisters are really, really enjoying the show, and I'm so happy to hear that. And I also heard that Mackie is doing a third grade report on Susan B. Anthony, which is super awesome. I also heard that Mackie is having a birthday on March 29th. So that's awesome too. Um, also, I have to say hello to Brant and Logan in Alton, Illinois, which is the home of Robert Wadlow, or Wadlow, Robert Wadlow. If you don't know who he is, he's the tallest man in history. Wow, that guy was tall. Also, Brent and Logan of Alton, Illinois, I have sung The Name of Your Town probably 150 or 200 times. There's a song that I sing, I used to sing all the time, uh, called Long Hot Summer Day by John Hartford, who I'm a big fan of and I've mentioned on the show. And there's a line in the song where he says, I'm gonna get off down in Alton on a long hot summer day. Something like that. Anyway, uh, and last but not least... Carter, you have a birthday song. Uh, it's you're turning ten. It's your tenth birthday, um, and we have a silly song in honor of the Carter Hour. So you, Carter, and everyone else, enjoy. Tomato, tomato, tomato. It's fun to say. Potato, potato, potato. It's fun to say. Tomato, tomato, tomato. It's fun to say. Potato, potato, potato. It's fun to say. Tomato, tomato, tomato. tomato it's fun to say. potato, baby, baby, with the tomato. i the take the diggy wiggy biggy with the jigsaw and puzzle, contain Just a Hmm. a diggy wiggy biggy with a jigsaw puzzle. Happy birthday, Carter. And everyone else, thank you so much for listening. My name is Mick Sullivan. This has been The Past and The Curious.